From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Verge 2016 in Santa Clara, California. On this week's edition, it's all Verge all the time, a sampling of speakers, conversations, and even some of the music from this four-day event. Not quite the same as being there, but we'll do what we can. It's our version of virtual reality, this week on 350. It's September 23rd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here at the Santa Clara Convention Center in Silicon Valley with senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How are you doing? Holding up? Well, that's a good, uh, generous way of saying it. It's been quite a week. Uh, it's an amazing week here. Um, now that it's uh, wrapped up and, and things are folding our tents literally out in the out in the parking lot, uh, the way we had the microgrid, it's, I mean, you know, I, I was flashing uh, just before we went uh, on air to talk, thinking about uh, one year ago when you and I, this podcast was pretty new, like two or three weeks old, and we were in, at the Fairmont in San Jose thinking about, you know, this exhausted moment after we've you know, these four days and nights of of talking, schmoozing, organizing, eating, dancing, and, you know, everything else, and then trying to sum it up. How in the hell do we do that? <laughs> right. Definitely the perennial question. And for the uninitiated, we're obviously talking about our Verge event series, so looking convergence of sustainability and technology, obviously just an area that gets richer by the day, uh, talking about everything from food to energy to self-driving trucks, just the list goes on and on. Um, but there is some some fun and less conventional things also going on this week, like a, a little party at a, an NFL stadium. Never heard anybody. Yeah, we had that uh, after dark party on uh, Wednesday night at the Levi Stadium at the NRG Solar Terrace, which is this amazing space uh, uh, under a canopy of, of solar panels where we had a DJ and a number of other little fun activities uh, and uh, about three or four hundred of our closest friends. But, um, you know, the, the, the speakers, I don't know, every year just, you know, we up, we seem to get an upgrade. It's it's kind of like an iPhone where we just uh, every year get a, a little bit better and, and the audience just gets a little more sophisticated. And I have to say there's quite a bit of optimism out there, both on both the speaker side and the audience side. And it's really refreshing. And I think that's one of the reasons that people really like this event and keep coming back is that it's a very optimistic, opportunity-centric view of sustainability, um, how technology is is transforming a lot of these or accelerating a lot of these sustainability solutions, and not just on energy and not just on environment. Where there's, There was a lot of conversation about improving lives, about um, how uh, we, you know, generate opportunity across borders, across oceans, and across... Uh, you know, gender lines and and and, and social barriers and, and and sort of how this really starts to, you know, address um, whether whether they, they were said explicitly or not the the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So that was really fun. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Obviously, Verge happened to coincide this year with Climate Week in New York. I talked to a few people who had hopped planes across the country yeah. to get out here afterward. Um, but yeah, exactly like you're saying, I think there was sort of an appreciation that we are in a moment where it's sort of no longer acceptable to not consider how your products impact consumers around the world at all different income thresholds, sort of uh, broadening 
the perspective on a lot of this stuff. So one of the things we're going to do over the next uh, hour or last or whatever this turns out to be is here's some snippets. So we'll set them up for you and some of the speakers, some of the conversations. Um, senior writer Heather Clancy, who uh, played a pivotal role uh, <laughs> just doing so many different uh, kinds of things at this event and moderating, interviewing, uh, and so on, will come along and we'll hear from her to, uh, her perspective. And uh, let's get into it. GreenBiz senior writer Heather Clancy is here. Heather, I think you get the Workhorse Award for Verge 2016. You were all over the place. You co-hosted the Sidebar, which is basically co-hosting the live stream. You were on the main stage three times, I think at least once a day. You did a whole bunch of breakouts and a bunch of interviews at GreenBiz Studio. Now you're here with us and doing the podcast. And so uh, thank you for your service. Of course. <laughs> Um, so the the live stream is really interesting. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, one of the things we do during our events is that we live stream the main stage uh, parts of that. And, and we also try to integrate the virtual audience with the audience in the room. And we do that through something called Green Biz Sidebar, where we have uh, – well, this time we had you, Heather, and, and – uh, uh, GreenBiz uh, Verge Senior uh, Program Director Elaine Shea, both talking and sort of moderating the online conversation, but also serving as the conduit for both the online audience and people in the room to ask questions. So it's sort of our way of integrating the two. Um, and by the way, I just saw some metrics from Issa Stamos, our uh, Director of Systems and Technology. We got uh, over 6,000 people at, at, at its peak uh, this week uh, watching, uh, unique unique viewers watching the um the live stream and of course all of our viewers are unique but uh, <laughs> uh that's great it's a great number so it's great engagement uh, tell us a little bit about what the audience conversation where were they from Just yeah what... so one thing you know i'll say about my observation of of seeing this this stuff at this on the main stage is we had of course someone from finland we had someone from germany there's been uh, i keep running into these gentlemen from norway um there's been a great international presence here uh, live uh, on site, but there was also a great international presence online as well. People from Slovakia, um, Philippines, Italy, people were checking in and out at various times, um, depending on the topics, right? So I think everyone really is looking for how the policy ch is different from or the same as their their little corner of the world, right? And so I feel like um, one of the conversations that I had with a couple of the different attendees was they'd love to see more interaction on, you know, how do I learn from this area of the world? How do I, how do, I do this? What did you find? What mistakes did you may, make? Um, what can I learn from you? Um, so as far as the activity, uh, it's interesting because it ranges from the very tactical. You know, we have people asking questions about how did you – what's the ethanol uh, efficiency, you know, what's the efficiency of this particular cellulosic ethanol? I mean, really specific, great questions, you know, high and, octane. And you had answers, of course. I, of course, actually was on stage at that moment, but uh. that, that was um, one of the questions that when I was um, interviewing uh, DuPont about in, uh, alternative fuels, you know, what, you know, is higher octane an answer? Is that, is, is that one alternative to electrification that you know, maybe we should be remembering and considering as, a, as maybe it's niche, maybe it's not niche, who, who knows, but an alternative. Were there particular speakers that really sort of yes, set off? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and then I, the the one that really uh, prompted a lot of uh, feedback and commentary and sort of this this whole like virtual discussion that kind of went out of control beyond <laughs> my my uh, my participation was um, the the comments on radical planetary optimism. And it was one of those 
you know, as a as we what we do, I, I you know, I go into my little corner of the world and and talk to people about what I write about. You know, I have some people that raise their eyebrows like, oh, you're a tree hugger and so forth. And why do you care about this so, so, you know sort of topic? And for me, it's always been about sustainable business practices are business practices, period, end stop, full stop, right? They just make sense. They're practical. They make sense. Why would you not want to operate your business that way? And so sometimes we feel like we're, we're creaching in the, you know, yelling in the dark and we, we, there's all these negative stats that people pull out at us. But the, the statistics that were coming out of that session, just everyone was like, oh, yay, I have numbers yeah. to talk about. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it gave everyone all of these great data points. You know, when you look, what you, you see random things all over the world and there's this, this solar, you know, uh, penetration figure here, and there's this water conservation figure there. And this was a great synthesis of all of the great wins that we are having and why they just make sense from yeah. an economic standpoint. So this, this was Ramez Nam Absolutely. from Sing Singularity yep. University. He, he gave a little presentation uh, that was really about why a futurist is optimistic, mm -hmm. which in and of itself is, you know, kind of hopeful. Yeah. And I love that he, fa he quoted Charles Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's hear a little clip. Tesla sold 300,000 in the first week of the Model 3 and is on track to sell half a million per year. And that's just one manufacturer. It's not a secret sauce that Tesla has. It's just a curve of this technology. And then you have a virtuous cycle. Batteries are exponential like solar. They drop in price as they scale. As you sell more EVs, you sell more batteries. The price of batteries drops. The price of your EV drops. You sell more EVs, and on and on. And the craziest thing I will tell you today, maybe, is that electric vehicles are destined to be the cheapest vehicles, because this is the entire drivetrain of an electric vehicle, 90% fewer moving parts than an internal combustion vehicle. And if you play out what that math looks like, it looks like electric vehicles being cheaper than a two-seater smart car, which is the green line here, by some point in the not too distant future. Energy is the biggest of these, but it's not the only resource. Water, we know we consume too much fresh water. How many of you know that per capita in the US, we're back down to 1930s levels of water consumption? because our farming has gotten more efficient and our industry has gotten more efficient. And how many know that the amount of energy it takes to desalinate water has dropped by an order of magnitude, a factor of 10, since the 1970s? Right? Or food, we have to grow a lot more food. The world is growing more food and a lot of it is energy access. Rich countries grow more food because they have tractors and fertilizer. As we get that energy access out, we'll see our food consumption go up. And if we think about our footprint on the planet, we all know that our footprint is growing, right? But our population is topping out, and our per capita footprint may shrink. In our hunter-gatherer era, it took 3,000 acres to feed one human being. Today, it takes about one-third of one acre to feed one human being, a 10,000x reduction in the land that we need. We can peak our resource utilization, even as we grow our well-being and our wealth around the world. I think that's a perfect segue to this broader theme that we heard a lot about, some, some conflicting perspectives at times on this big concept of innovation, which Heather, obviously right in your wheelhouse, you write about this stuff, virtual reality, all different kinds of clean tech all the time. Um, what were some of the most interesting things you heard this week in terms of innovations on the horizon? So 
you can think of innovation in two ways. As one is a technolo technological innovation, but also an innovation in business model or in even just philosophy. And for me, one of the things that kept coming up at this particular conference versus the ones I've attended in the past was, you know, hey, you know, we've got these great technologies in place. Um, we're, we're, we're finally getting some of the big data services, the cloud, you know, the, the cloud work being done by Google, Amazon, Microsoft. There's this amazing capacity to analyze this information. Now that I have this stuff, I can do things with it at, again, back, just back in my operations. It doesn't have to be off on the side. So the innovation that I, you know, the, the quote, if you will, innovation, end quote, that I heard coming out of this conference had to do with the sort of the traditional non-sustainability types thinking about making this core to their operation. So um, it's almost like the mainstreaming of this concept. That for me, I mean, maybe it's maybe I'm just like being Pollyannish here, but um, that for me was like a breakthrough in, in thinking. And that's one thing that really stuck out for me. Mm -hmm. And I think another interesting dimension to this whole issue is sort of innovation meaning different things to different people in terms of the size of the mm -hmm. organization you're mm -hmm. working for. And one speaker we had that got right into the heart of that is Jigger Shaw, who is the co-founder of Generate Capital. And here's some of his thoughts. The fact that we're not talking about innovation right now excites me so much. I am so tired of innovation all the time. Right, what GE Current's doing and Walmart's doing is saying, screw innovation, we are deploying at billion dollar scale. We're deploying stuff that's already ready to go, LED lighting or solar PV or EVs or whatever. All these cottage industries that we never gave any respect to, we are now gonna put the full weight of our company behind deploying them at scale, right? What do you think? Look, I'm an innovation investor, so I guess we don't really. Um, once again, there might be some disagreement, but uh, no, I think, of course, I totally agree. It's terrific that that's happening. However, I'm also very pleased that in the world of venture and early stage companies, like the companies that came up, uh, amazing companies that presented um, half an hour ago, we're just seeing a transition from clean tech or some sort of sideshow at a typical conference to this being front and center, center stage, and now. Clean tech is tech tech, and sustainability tech is just tech, and it reminds me of e-commerce just becoming commerce again because it was embedded into the fabric of business, and Walmart for sure and GE are proving that every day. Okay, let's go. Final question, and then if there's a sidebar, we do that, but is DG inherently, like by definition, is DG good? And you could throw in like, what's a microgrid really? Because that might fall into the zero billion dollar market if we're not careful. Like, if, if your utility offers you 100% renewable power, 100%, why would you put solar on your rooftop? So is there something inherently natural, like an inalienable right about DG that just makes it great? Yes. What is that thing? I don't know, the American way? Like independence? Like, you know, giving the utility the middle finger? Mm. I mean, there's lots of things. Like if, if someone came to me and said, if you sign here, I will give you power, 100% renewable energy power from a community solar station that's 200 miles away, right? Versus saying, I'm gonna put solar on your roof and so your child can actually see it every day and you can tell all the people that come to your dinner party that I'm better than you. Except that those people will say, really? Because I've got solar too and it's just cheaper. Yeah, exactly. And so how many kudos do you get for that? It's like, you signed a contract for 100% renewable energy or you buy Rex or whatever it is that you did. Like how many kudos are you gonna get versus if you had an electric vehicle in your driveway and like solar on your house. You're gonna get way more street cred for doing that, right? 
And you know that, that that's what's driving it, right? That's why the Tesla Solar City merger is so amazing. You've got two street cred companies coming together. Another conversation, one that I had on the main stage was with uh, David Crane, uh, Green Biz uh, editor at large, former CEO of NRG, now with uh, Pegasus Capital Advisors. And he was in conversation with uh, Dennis McGinn, who is Assistant Secretary of the Navy for uh, Energy and Environment. Um, and uh, both both pretty good rock on tours. And we ended up uh, talking a lot about uh, sort of the developing world and how we scale innovation there. But we also came back to, you know, how do we accelerate this whole uh, movement, uh, big companies and small um, and in in the developed world as well, and this you have to keep in mind he's a former CEO of a publicly traded company, and he put the the blockage, really the onus, directly on the, the doorstep of Wall Street. What's happened in the last two years, you know, coming from a public company perspective, is Wall Street basically hates energy, clean energy, dirty energy, because everything's dirt cheap, and you know the oil companies are down, the coal companies are bankrupt. Uh, you know, you know, the solar industry suffered an own goal with Sun Edison's, you know, sort of, you know, flop. Uh, and it's just not a good time for companies that, with ambitious uh, to go to the public markets and say, hey, give me a couple billion you know, dollars that's not available. And um, uh, the venture capital world, the private equity world can nurture companies. But again, no one's writing a 10 figure check. And what surprises me and what I would expect is someone's got to come in. This, none of this changes the long-term narrative. This is the future. What we're doing here is the future uh, in an industry that worldwide is a $6 trillion a year industry. So I, I sort of expect any other industry, the incumbents in the industry, the, the utilities would be coming in. You know, a big utility could buy a 60% market share. I mean, you could buy SolarCity, Vivint, and uh, Sunrun for less than $3 billion, well, three, three to $4 billion aggregate, and you have 60% market share mm. in, in what's a future trillion. But, but no, the utilities aren't going to do that. But will someone from a related industry come in? And Because I'll tell you what I see is the biggest opportunity, and this, of course, is breaking news, you know, Climate Week and all that. When General Motors announces that they're going 100% renewable, but then you think about their far, how do they do that? They're not going to be able to do that internally. They're going to have to hire some you know, SAP of solar energy. Uh, but no SAP of solar energy exists. Right. Uh, and someone's going to see this opportunity uh, because I don't know how many of the global Fortune 100 companies have said, we're going 100% renewable right now. But the number's about to grow exponentially. Yet there, I, yeah, yet, the demand signal, I think, yeah. is clearly there. We, yeah. our and that's one, the great thing about capitalism. Someone yeah. will fill the void. But, right. the, but the thing that makes it so exciting you know, for the people in the room, people like me, is who's the one that's going to fill that void? And Secretary McGinn was really just interesting because he's uh, a renewable energy energy guy through and through. Uh, who's uh, you know now uh, back at the Navy. He was the Vice Admiral in his earlier career. Now as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, um, and he you know really helped us see how energy poverty uh, is a security threat, and uh, you know how we how we uh, need to address that if we're going to really address security. Yeah, and that for me again, I. I I have covered that, 
the investments that the Navy is making, and they are very much not, you know, I, we actually had some online questions about this. Oh, where do they get the funding? Well, the, the funding's there. It's used that money in a different way than you have in the past, right? So it's a, a national security inter, uh, interest in, in his mind, and it's a strategy that isn't, we're not going off and, in, you know, investing in all these new things. We are looking to our future, figuring out how we become more mobile, how we get our military in places of the world where there aren't these resources, how we make the footprint smaller, and P.S., how we save tax money at the same time. And that, that's the sort of argument that, that he's using and making it very well, too. So, Heather, thanks again for all your great work this week and um, for stopping by Green Biz Studio to talk about the, the amazing week we've just had. Thanks for having me here. I've just got to go figure out what to write now. Sounds coming from the mouth. That was a little taste of what we saw on stage from Butterscotch Clinton, a very talented musician and artist who we had on stage at Verge. And really amazing. I have to say, of all the Clintons, uh, Butterscotch is now my favorite. <laughs> One of the themes this week uh, has been culture change, how we get people to, uh, to do what they need to do to be part of this uh, clean, sustainable economy, and not just in, uh, in the developed world, but all over the world. And we had some great conversations in the use of technology in that, uh, including virtual reality. Um, I don't know if you got a chance, uh, Lauren, to stop by the AMD booth uh, and play with a virtual reality. I was just hearing a little bit about these sort of underwater scenarios. I hear you can see a whale going by, all kinds of stuff. It was great. There was a, one uh, of the simulations they have was a VR experience, really, was yeah, you're in a, in effect, like a shark tank. Actually, one shark does go by with a whale and a bunch of little fish. And, and you turn it around, as you turn around and see this experience. And I could just imagine, you know, people who don't really appreciate the oceans or it could have been a rainforest or it could have been any environment to really, you know, dive in, as it were in this case, and to really experience that. And we had some conversations on the main stage about the use of technology, too, in, in, in affecting culture change. One of the really intriguing speakers on that topic was the founder and CEO of Emblematic Group, also known as the godmother of virtual reality, which is a pretty sweet name. Her name is Nani De La Pena. And here's a little taste of what she had to say. So, uh, I, you know, I harken back to when uh, uh, in the 1960s when we used to send uh, war images from Vietnam into living rooms at 6 p.m., um, but on the other hand, uh, at 9 p.m. Uh, at Newsnight in, in, in England, I saw much more intense stuff about Syria than I ever saw on US, U.S. television. So it's a really interesting balance about how do we offer audiences information that helps them understand their world, and yet um, how do we uh, res be respectful of exactly those issues. So, <clears throat> you know, here is, 
the, the quandary that I find myself in as a journalist, right? Um, you're not meant to go out and advocate and, and right. see for the change, right? Or else you're not necessarily respected in communities and allowed access, right? So you have to be careful. That said, um, sometimes I feel like it's really unfair for what I put my audience through because I've made a lot of people cry. Um, and yet, then what do you do to, to offer the tools? And this is something that I sometimes currently um, battle with. I do collect data on people's reactions. Uh, and um, I can say when we took Project Syria to the Victorian Albert Museum uh, uh, in June, they didn't advertise it, and it had a five-day run. At the end of those five days, we had 54 pages of guestbook comments. Um, people just saying, I had no idea, I had no idea, I had no idea, uh, except for my favorite comment, which was from a woman whose family was still in Syria, in which she said, at first I thought, this was terrible, what were you doing? How could you do this? And then I tried it. Another thing that really bubbled up in a lot of these conversations about meshing these emerging technologies into society was the whole area of labor. So we had Tim O'Reilly on stage talking about this concept of the algorithm being the new shift boss and some of the big sort of labor cha challenges that we're going to have to address. Um, and one a uh, really intriguing example of that is a company called Otto out of Silicon Valley. One of the interesting things about Otto, and of course that's O-T-T-O, -T -O, uh, and this was spun out of out of Google originally, uh, is that you know we hear so much about autonomous vehicles and you know, the Teslas and everybody else that's moving in that direction. This is about autonomous trucks. You know, how do the uh, the uh, the big eighteen wheelers, you know, become autonomous that it allows, uh, well, it could allow uh, them to do it with more more with fewer drivers, um, or certainly need to be drivers in there at some point. Uh, there's actually an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal this week about that and about uh, how quickly we're moving in that direction, just as we're moving, I think, much more quickly than anyone expected towards autonomous vehicles. Um, but Auto, just over the past uh, week, got acquired by Uber, and this was really his first outing since then. And so it was really interesting to hear his vision of what's coming down the pike. Their CEO, Anthony Lewandowski, talked about the fact that trucks on average have about eight times more carbon emissions in a car, which, as he said, you would expect given that they're larger vehicles. But he, as he framed it, that's also potentially a much bigger potential impact to draw down emissions. Um, and then you pair that with some of the, the ongoing safety concerns for long haul trucking. And I'm, I'm you know, this is going to be an issue down the road with the Teamsters unions and, and lots of different other groups. Um, but I think it's really intriguing, nonetheless, to think about the potential for technology, especially in the short term, where you're likely to have technology and truck drivers working together. So the difference between the best, most, most fuel-efficient uh, truck driver compared to the worst on the same route for the same amount of uh, weight that they're moving around is 35%. That's huge. Imagine one-third difference on the fuel savings for something that's moving mass around. That must be uh, an amazing opportunity. So if you look at just training alone of these people, you can get 5 to 20% improvement. But now just imagine if you can bring technology and bring the, the technique and the precision of the best drivers uh, to every single car or truck out there. All of the fuel-saving tricks and um, expertise uh, will be available to every single truck uh, all the time. We can also think about, you know, in the future there'll be platooning, trucks be driving very close to each other, but there's a way to do that now without having uh, full conversions of all the trucks. If you have a self-driving truck that can drive 24 hours a day, now, going 65 or 61 miles an hour doesn't really make a difference 
where you can get all the benefits of platooning by just driving four miles an hour slower. So uh, another thing that's really important is utilization. Uh, imagine that uh, the, the Federal Highway, or sorry, Department of Transportation has a statistics that 15 to 25% of all trucks are empty driving around, uh, which is pretty uh, impressive. I think it's actually much higher than that. Um, and the ones that are carrying cargo have 36% underutilization. Um, you know, this is the age of the internet. We can containerize things, we can batch things into smaller uh, uh, containers, and we can fill them in more efficiently. So bringing the utilization up would allow us to save uh, 100 million tons of CO2 and $30 billion of fuel every year, which is pretty substantial. Um, so what's it like to be a truck driver on a highway? Uh, what does it really mean? So, you know, 12% um, of all motor vehicle deaths are caused by truck drivers or trucking-related uh, incidents, and, but yet they only drive 6% of all the miles, and they make up for only 1% of the vehicles. So this kind of tells you about the opportunity for improving safety by making uh, truck drivers even more uh, safe than they are today. And so think about having the technology to drive a, a truck uh, as safe as the safest driver all the time. The topic of resilient cities was another one uh, that permeated Verge. It was also uh, one of the six tracks that we had at the conference. And we heard a lot about, you know, what does it take, what does it mean, first of all, for a city to be resilient? So we had the chief resilience officer of our own city of Oakland, California, Karen Jane, in conversation with Jennifer Polka, who's the founder of Code for America, which is a nonprofit that works with cities, uh, particularly to use data, harness data. I have to say, I was pretty shocked by that conversation because they actually made me really sit up and pay attention to the concept of city procurement processes, which I have to admit, normally my eyes might glaze over a little <laughs> yeah. bit. But in this context, they were talking about, especially with this glut of smart city technology that's hitting the market, you know, connected devices we're hearing a lot about in terms of um, sensors you can put on traffic lights or on lighting to sort of really maximize efficiency of a lot of our infrastructure. Um, and they were talking about how that really changes the way that cities have to go about doing their business, what sort of where they're even putting requests for proposals, maybe throwing them on GitHub, as Jen Palga said, the developer community online. Or um, I think Kieran Jane from the city of Oakland said that they recently put out an RFP that had um, a, a basically a user experience component. To, so definitely not your stodgy old government paperwork. So here's a little of what Kieran Jane had to say about the future of smart city technology. The problems that we're trying to solve are too big for an institution to do it. Um, we've got to bring people together and let people use government as a platform to solve these problems. Um, so there's a million different aspects to that, but um, certainly bringing government in the 21st century doesn't necessarily just mean more tech, but it, what it does mean is um, really understanding what people go through when they interact with government. When you talk about, for instance, digitizing the process for um, housing, part of the problem is that we're looking at data, we keep looking at data, but if we don't have the data about what's actually happening to people, uh, which you can't really get at if you don't have access to it because the uh, processes aren't digital, 
um, then you really can't solve the problem from the perspective of people. So I think that's sort of the transformation we've gone from is back when uh, sort of 2008, 2009, we were looking at what data government has, and now I think we're more looking at what da data does government need to truly get to the outcome that we need. Yeah. Or what if government, you know, wore a Fitbit? <laughs> what kind of yeah. information would you be collecting on it that could then drive, you know, um, outcomes and priorities? I think that is where we're definitely moving the conversation in Oakland to. We've had an open data policy for years, but then thinking about how the data also moves the institution forward, I think is really important. The whole idea of census was literally, pardon the expression, embedded throughout this conference, which <laughs> Ooh, is, yeah, sorry. Well, you know, just how, uh, whether it's traffic lights or 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 plastic packaging or uh, obviously you know planes trains and automobiles and just everything the the role of sensors in sustainability of course that sensors uh, yield data data needs to be analyzed you know uh, needs to be actionable and either by a, a machine or a human but that the the role of sensory technology not something that we typically have thought of as clean technology and that's sort of why I think that term clean tech is sort of over uh, and meaningless these days but there is just uh, it's it's really fascinating so i mean i talked with uh, ellen macarthur on a uh, on a panel with google and nike about the circular economy and where that's going and you know they're doing a lot of work uh, with intelligent materials intelligent assets is is how they refer to it and and it's just you know something that we have to understand from a technology perspective and get more comfortable with how in, you know these sensors embedded in everything uh, can really be a game changer. Here's a little of what Ellen MacArthur had to say. Just using a bit less for the next 20, 30, 40 years doesn't solve it because you're still going to use things up from a material perspective and obviously there's the energy perspective as well. So. When, it's, when it comes to people getting it, the, the first thing we did at the foundation really was go to McKinsey and say, look, you know, this is an idea of a circular economy, it's a different economic model, it's going from the linear take, make, dispose, which we're trying to make more efficient, to a circular model where from the outset you design to recover materials, components, keep the, the products at the highest utility at all times, and shift towards renewables. It was a very different idea, it was going from efficiency to effectiveness. And we said to McKinsey, you know, what's the value? What's this worth to the, you know, initially to the European economy? And the way I think we have traction is because when we ran the numbers on that, the numbers came out really high. You know, the first report was 630 billion US dollars to the European economy, looking at just goods that cycle in more than one year and less than 10. So showing that this is about opportunity and economic rationale is where it all began. And I think because it's about a fundamental different economic model, it's not making the one we have a little bit better. It's saying, right, if we have to have systemic change, if we know the current economy doesn't run in the long term, then what does? When you paint the circular picture, what does it look like? And I think that's what grabs people's attention, not just in business, but from cities, regions, governments, countries, World Economic Forum, but also in education. Because the kids, they want to see a future. They want to do more faster. You know, I remember very clearly sitting with the chief exec of, exec of a huge automotive company who said, you know, basically over 12 months, his, his raw material costs had gone up by 500 million euros. So half his operating profits wiped away within 12 months. You know, they're so volatile, those raw material prices. Actually, that's a threat to the business. It's a threat to profits, to the business, the employment that they provide to everything. So actually there is a real challenge out there within the current economy. Um, and I think that the, the second point comes back to that systemic change. That systemic change happens right through the business. So that has to happen from the top to a certain extent and from the bottom. But actually if you don't have the CEO who says, we fundamentally need this business to shift from linear to circular, 
then it's much harder to make happen. And that takes time, it takes awareness, it takes you know, the, the employees within the organization understanding what that means. It takes uh, you know, different incentives within the company because when you're incentivized to sell as many as possible, why would you switch to a circular model whereby you're providing the service of that vehicle? You know, how do you change those incentive schemes? But it's, it's fundamentally about the bottom line. And where do you enter in? And the point of this is very different from uh, you know, previous sustainability conversations. You would have the, you know, the CSO, the sustainability department, you would have the annual report of a company and you'd have the annual report and then you'd have the sustainability report. They were very separate. It was this is what we're doing and this is what we're doing to try and make things better. I think what's different with a circular economy is your entry point has to be multiple points. You have to, when you look at the systemically changing a business and the ecosystem that it sits within, you know, it has to be the finance department, it has to be the design department, it has to be the, you know, the, the marketing department because when you're going from shifting from selling a product that you're trying to make more efficient, you know, you take you know, the automotive industry, you're trying to make a car with a bit less material in it, make it using a little bit less energy, but actually you make money when you sell them, so you still have to sell more and more. You shift to a circular model whereby you design differently, you sell the performance of the product, uh, actually you want to get the most utility out of that product that you've made, so you build it differently rather than you know, trying to get them out the door thick and fast. That's a very different conversation within the organization because you, everybody is involved. Now that's not easy and it takes time, but actually to create real success, it has to change at every point within the business over yeah. time. One of the things I want to give a shout out to is the Summit Series. This is something that was new at Verge 2016, which are uh, four half-day summits, we called them, uh, one on the circular economy, one on the utility of the future, another on next-gen buildings, and a fourth one on connected transportation. And these were uh, invitation-only events. We got about 60 to 80 people in the room for you know four and a half hours to really do roll up their sleeves and, and dig into some, some interesting and important topics. Um, and, and that was fun stuff. A sh big, big, big shout out to Shauna Rappaport, who, aside from all the other things she did this week, uh, organized, curated, uh, handpicked the participants for all four of those uh, summits. But um, I, I got to go to the Circular Economy. In fact, I was very involved with that one, uh, which was on Monday. And uh, it was, I think this is one of those topics that everybody, you know, we hear talked about more, but don't, people don't really understand what it is. And when they come together and they start to get, you see those little light bulbs go off and those lost hotels sort of disappear, that, that um, you know, the, the clarity that comes from this and the understanding of what the ecosystem looks like and all the different people in the room that they could be uh, collaborating with. It was it was really fun and exciting, Lauren. I know in the lead up to the event too, it, it just sort of your mind can go wild in terms of what are the, the key issues that we need to drill down to. I was involved a little bit with transportation and just there alone, you can get into fuels, you can get into self-driving technology, you can get into connectivity. Um, so I think it's, it's really interesting when you can pull together these diverse groups of people and sort of really focus on one or two areas that a lot of people are running into as a common obstacle. Well, that's sort of the blessing and the curse of Verge uh, overall, which is that, you know, the world is our oyster. There are a thousand, uh, probably almost literally a thousand topics we could be talking about and figuring out which ones are are, the, are are new and fresh and interesting and under under covered and and need to you know just have some new voices uh, to to talk about. Uh, that's really part of the fun and and of course the the curse is having to you know eliminate everything else and say oh, we haven't talked about this and this and this and this. But um, that's the fun and the challenge and all the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making an event just like this. Speaking of Shauna Rappaport, I another thing that she did and has been doing for the last number of, of Verges is. Or 
organizing Verge Accelerate, which is the pitch uh, showcase where we have eight entrepreneurs uh, come on do two and a half minute spiels. And uh, then we have a panel of industry experts and then we have audience voting. And um, we did that twice uh, this week at Verge. Uh, she organizes that. And, and, and you, many of you who are listening to this podcast are vote. Uh, it helps us uh uh, votes on some of the videos that we put up and helps us uh, winnow the, the group down to what we ultimately uh, put on. We thought we put together a little montage of of some of the uh, the voices, uh, but uh, we'll be posting all those uh, videos on- online so you can see the whole pitch uh, and nothing but the pitch in the next few weeks. But yeah, here's just a sampling. What we're able to do is, is to create a fiber from garment waste that is uh, finer, denier than silk and stronger than cotton. Earlier this year, we made the first jean in the world in partnership with Levi's. The 14 million tons of garment waste that we throw away every year in the United States can now be converted into a high quality raw material. And that 700 gallons of water that we use for cotton gets cut by 98%. We decided to update nature for the modern world with fully autonomous vertical garden systems that take up zero floor space in your high value lofts, offices, etc. The process of getting data out of utilities right now, it comes down to a pen and paper. Or it's a fax machine and a piece of paper that someone has to sign. And this flow of data between energy innovators and utilities, it's a spaghetti mess. We're cleaning up that spaghetti mess with a universal data conduit between utilities and the energy innovators. We've developed a simple, out-of-the-box solution that can be deployed anywhere it's needed to start collecting data. Farmers lease, plant, and grow hardware to get online with low cost. Smart Yields helps farmers protect their crops and enhance their yields. We empower current and future farmers to take the guesswork out of growing. If you are not a homeowner with good credit, a good south, southwest-facing roof with, uh, in good condition and no shading uh, obstructions, you probably are not a good candidate for residential rooftop solar. So the solution to that is to expand access to solar energy through community shared solar. Our model is simple and turnkey. We install and maintain beehives for businesses and cities to rebuild healthy honeybee populations. And in return, the businesses receive a sustainable marketing tool, all the honey their hives produce, and classes so their employees can learn and be proud of what they're doing to better the world. What I think of Opus 12 as is a new platform technology that enables the electrification of the chemical sector. In essence, we've invented a new way of making chemicals. So rather than starting with long chain hydrocarbons and breaking them down in massive refineries into the products you want, we do the exact opposite. And we start with these basic building blocks of CO2 and water, and we use electricity to build them up into the products you want. So what we do is we take carbon nanotubes, which are sort of like very, very small straws. These are straws that are so small that the opening is just big enough for water and salt, but smaller than most contaminants in water that we care about. And that's our 350 podcast this week, uh, the Verge 2016 edition. You can, as always, go to greenbiz.com slash 
350 to find the links to the organizations, events, stories that we mentioned in this episode. Thanks to our hard, hard-working podcast director, Soraya Melconian, for pulling together all the great clips. And as she always does, engineering this week's podcast. Uh, contact us by email, 350 at greenbiz.com, and we'll be back at the headquarters in Oakland, California next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. So this song is for anyone who's ever been made fun of for being different. This is my story. White, didn't grow black, didn't grow up in a healthy habitat Didn't know what it was, didn't know what I wanted to be All I knew is that I couldn't see Stephen made me wonder, was it better to be blind? Would that be easier to find? In a life for me to shine, to see the sign Was too high to see that ribbon in the sky Too much fight in the home, better thoughts in the dome Suicide dreams will wake me alone Looking for a different world, take me home Somewhere but knowing on my own With that all stress, pain on my chest Getting harder to breathe, can't see what I see I'm trapped in a system that hates what is different Anyone with a vision, they don't fucking listen I'm trying to live yeah, I'm trying to live. Yeah. It's none of your business if you slept with a woman or a man. Frankly, I don't give a damn what you think. I'm a freak. What I do on the sheets doesn't concern you. I don't understand why you care so much. Why do you people stare so much? Why you point and glare so much? Like you're the one to judge. Then you're fucked up life. You can't get enough pushing people down. Like you wear a crown. The king is dead. My time is now. I'm going to walk around like I own this shit. Never back down because I'm making hits. Don't believe in violence, but I won't turn the cheek if it makes me weak. Because the hate in your flicks makes me weak for my brothers and sisters who lost their lives now buried in the deep, 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 deep. I'm trying to live, Whether you're white, black, yellow, red, green, or turquoise, Mohawk, Navajo, Cherokee, Iroquois, we all from the same tribe, rooting in the same sky, all gonna live, we all gonna die. We go back on the earth, begin a new birth. Karma decides, no new worth. Will you be a butterfly, will you be dirt? So many times for those you hurt. Step on me, and I'll step on you for all the things that you pulled me through. Tired of hiding, tired of fighting, can't understand my life is frightening. Never gonna see what you want me to be, a grain of salt in an endless sea. I don't take what you say seriously, so stop all you hate and live it free, free, free. Just let me be free, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm trying to live, can't you see what you hate does to me? I'm trying to live, I'm trying to live, let me be free, let me be free.